Reading from Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, the birth of Samuel. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zaphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. To the Lord, excuse me, to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phineas, two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, but her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfil his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. <clears throat> Do what seems best to you, to you, her husband Elkanah said to her. Stay here until you have weaned him, only, only make the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. 
When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my lord, as surely as you live. I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. Alrighty. Thanks, Diane. That was quite a long passage, wasn't it? Quite a bit to get through and some tricky words at the start there. I'll let me just get set up. Uh, good to remind us that afterwards we'll have a Q&A as always. Uh, and so you'll be able to ask those questions out loud on the microphone. Uh, or if you'd rather to text them in, that, that way you can sort of stick anonymous. But uh, as we go through, if you think of anything, uh, jot it down so that you can ask it afterwards. Um, now, this is a big year. I don't know if you know that. Uh, it's big because this is the year that Kirst and I will finally finish our renovations. There's some scepticism, but, but I think it's possibly true. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Uh, we started renovating our place about six years ago. Uh, later in the picture, we've brought in some big guns, thoroughly recommend plum houses. Uh, but lots of it we did along the way ourselves. You can tell those bits, they're the wonky bits. Uh, and it's meant that we spent lots of our spare time, our holidays, uh, instead of going places, chipping away at the house. It's been a long process, uh, but it's our fault. We knew exactly what we were signing up for. When we bought the house, we bought it knowing it was a fixer-upper. Uh, we weren't starting off with a house with nothing to do. We were starting off with a house that needed a whole bunch of stuff done. Uh, and, and so what a process it's been. Uh, but, but why am I telling you all this? Why have I started off talking about my house instead of the Bible? Well, it's because uh, today as we kick off our time in 1 Samuel, uh, it's good to acknowledge what we're getting into. Uh, we don't start off this book wondering, oh, well, I wonder what Israel is like at the moment. Uh, the context of the book makes it really clear for us how Israel is going. Uh, and like my house, Israel is a bit of a fixer-upper. Uh, from the outset, the people of Israel, uh, we see need a whole lot of work done. Uh, one of the exciting things, I think, in this book is that we get to see the progress shots along the way. Uh, we get to see the work that God is doing. And though it's not always pretty, uh, I think it's something that will really help us to grow. Uh, and so uh, this is how we're going to look at today's passage. This is what, what, where we'll be going. Uh, the first thing we're going to see is the problem. We're going to see why I'm saying that Israel is a fixer-upper. Uh, the second thing we'll see is the small story, uh, this small story that kicks off the book. Uh, and third, we'll see the small story actually points to a bigger story, something bigger that, that is going on and unfolding through this book. Uh, and last of all, uh, as we always do, we'll think about uh, how this all plays out for us. Uh, how does this impact our own stories? Now, before we do all that, it's always good to start with prayer. And so I'm going to pray that God would speak to me, speak through me. Uh, through this sermon. Uh, Lord, we are super excited to be here tonight. We're excited to be opening your word uh, in this new book. Uh, Lord, we're excited for what you have to teach us. And I pray that as I speak, uh, that your truths will come through, uh, that 
You'll speak through me and show us what, what you need us to hear. And that as I do that, that will be shaped and changed by it so that we can become more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so the problem. Uh, that's our first point. Uh, and what we're really doing here is looking at the context. That's always important whenever we look at a part of the Bible that we understand where it fits in the Bible, what's going on around it. Uh, and particularly here as we start a new book, uh, we want to know where does this book fit in the Bible? What's been going on? What do we need to understand as we read this story? Uh, so to get our heads around, I'm going to put a timeline up on the screen. Uh, and it shows the story of the Bible starting at creation. Uh, and I'll kind of try and work through and take you through the highlights. Uh, so here we go. There it is. I'm going to try and be really technologically proficient here, but it might not work. I might be failing at the start without getting this pen thing out. There we go. All right. Uh, now, what do we got? So here we go. We've got Adam and Eve. Can you guys see that? Do I need a different colour? Adam and Eve. Uh, right at the beginning, the Garden of Eden. We know that. Uh, hope that's the very first story in the Bible. Uh, and then we get down through these, these really important figures that come up in, in Genesis. Uh, and so one there, Abraham. Abraham is who God made these amazing promises to, that he'd give him land, he'd give him uh, offspring that make a whole nation. Sorry about my terrible writing. I'd never make a good teacher, would I? Uh, and the last one he says is that through Abraham's family, there'll be a blessing to the whole world, land, offspring, and blessing. Uh, we see that kind of unfolding uh, through the story. And we get uh, the Israelites become this kind of nation in Egypt through the 12 tribes. Uh, and then Moses, we might have heard of him. Uh, he leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea through the desert. Uh, to the promised land. So that's that other promise, the, the land that God will give them. Uh, and then we get uh, the, the book of Joshua as they arrive and, and start heading into the land. Uh, and then the book of Judges. You can see it over here. Judges is, uh, and if anyone wants this timeline, by the way, I'll, I'm very happy to show you where I got it, email it through to you. Uh, and Judges is, is kind of the, the book that comes chronologically right before uh, 1 Samuel, and so Judges gives us a bit of insight into what's going on. Uh, and then after, after that, through 1 Samuel, we start to see these kings come. So Saul, uh, the first king, David, uh, and then right at the end, we, we meet Solomon. Uh, and so that's kind of where we fit in the timeline. Um, and to give you some sense, if it's all a bit new to you, um, uh, Jesus comes sort of about a thousand years after all this. Uh, so down there, so if that, that helps, we get to Jesus. Um, but like I said, uh, as we, we look at this, Judges is the book that comes right before. Uh, so if we're going to understand uh, Samuel, we kind of need to understand what's happened at the end of Judges. Um, now, fortunately, uh, it was only last July that we finished our series through Judges. Uh, and so some of you will remember bits and pieces of that. Um, just uh, a little side note, in, your, in our Bibles, we'll see that it goes Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, we wouldn't see Ruth sitting there. It sits somewhere else. Uh, and so we're, we're kind of supposed to read Judges 1 Samuel as though it's, it's the story continuing on. Uh, though Ruth takes place at around the same time, and that's why it's sitting there. 
Um, now, through Judges, as we said, that, that's the moment where uh, Israel is taking this promised land that God's, been, that God's promised them, that he's giving them. Uh, and, and as they do that, they're supposed to be God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Um, but we see that there's a bit of a problem. Uh, they ended up with something quite different to that picture. They ended up uh, with this cycle that we kind of saw through our series. Uh, and the cycle goes that uh, Israel sins, they turn away from God, uh, and then God sends another nation to oppress them, to show them their sin. Uh, finally, they, after they've had enough of it, they repent and call out to God, and so God sends a judge, that's where the name of the book comes from, uh, to deliver them from their enemies, and they have peace again. Um, only to start the whole cycle again. And, and one of the things that was particularly depressing as we made our way through Judges was we saw it wasn't just a cycle, but it was actually more of a downward spiral. As things went on, as each cycle went round, things got worse and worse and worse and worse. And the whole nation of Israel spiraled down into being worse than the, the nations around them. Uh, they were kind of the the worst in the area. They, they were supposed to be standing out as God's people and instead uh, they were terrible. And we get to the point where in the last couple of chapters of Judges, it's just this atrocious, horrible picture of idolatry and rape and murder and war. And, and it leaves you disgusted. That, that's part of the point is it's disgusting just how bad things go. Uh, and in those last few chapters of Judges, we get this verse that comes up a, a number of times. Uh, we read it over and over again. It goes like this. Uh, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And it's a way of saying that, that there was just total rebellion. They just let go of God as a nation. They'd rejected him. They were doing their own thing. And, and it was not a pretty picture. And so the book of Judges finishes with a bleak picture of Israel's failure. And with the reader left asking, what on earth could be done for this miserable, miserable nation? Uh, we do get a bit of a clue there uh, that perhaps the answer is in finding a king. Um, but really, things in Israel have gotten so bad at this point that, that there's probably a part of most people wondering, why doesn't God just give up on them? Why well, did he just find a new lot of people? Because these guys are, are not good. And so like we said at the start, we're, we're left with Israel, who, who is this ultimate fixer-upper. Renovations are most definitely required. And, and so when we get to the start of 1 Samuel, we might be expecting something big to happen. Uh, we might be expecting uh, some powerful act of God. We've seen them before in the Bible. Uh, we've seen, you know, worldwide floods. We've seen these ten plagues in Egypt. Uh, we saw the walls of Jericho tumble down after a bit of marching and trumpets. Uh, and at this point, we're, we're probably expecting God to do something huge. Uh, and, and that's how Samuel would start. Um, but in our second point, we see something quite different. Uh, we're going to zoom in on, on not this incredible, uh, powerful, nation-shaking thing. We're going to zoom in on the story of just one family. Uh, so let's go to the second point, the small story. Uh, and I should say, uh, as we head into it, that I've called this point the small story, uh, not because it's small in significance. We'll see as, as we go through something that, that what happens here is really significant. Uh, 
but uh, it is small in scale. Not small in significance, small in scale. Like I said, it's not the nation gathered, it's a family. And uh, it will, of course, as we'll see go through this series, uh, as we go through this series, we'll see the significance, um, but it's just this one family. Uh, in the passage Dion read for us, we're introduced to a small family, a husband named Elkanah uh, and his two wives, Hannah and Penina. Uh, and in looking at this family, we find a heartbreaking situation. Hannah is barren, uh, unable to conceive children, a situation that, that is made so much worse by this other wife, Penina. Elkanah's other wife torment her over it. Uh, and it's this sustained thing we, we see, it goes on and on as we read, it's been happening year after year. Uh, and it's gut-wrenching, isn't it? Anyone who's struggled to have kids or, or who's been close to someone who's been through that struggle knows what a raw uh, emotional struggle it is to, to go through. Uh, that with, with every announcement from people around you of pregnancy, with, with every other child that you see go past, uh, it's a twist of the knife. And, and for Hannah, it's made much worse by Penina, who, who's obviously having no problems having kids. She's, she's churning them out, uh, constantly reminding Hannah of the situation that she's in. Uh, and in this culture, in Israel at the time, a huge amount of a woman's identity was wrapped up in her role of mothering the next nation. Uh, it doesn't actually tell us why Elkanah had that second wife. Uh, it tells us Hannah was his favourite. But there's, it seems a good possibility that because she couldn't uh, have kids that he'd married someone else, uh, uh, taken on a second wife so that uh, kids would come. Salt in the wound for Hannah. Uh, Hannah would have felt like a worthless failure. Uh, that's a, a real emotion she's going through. Uh, so we meet her here in 1 Samuel. We see she's broken, she's in anguish, she's weeping bitterly. And so she heads to the Lord's house, uh, to the tabernacle. Uh, so they didn't have a temple yet. It would have been the, the tent of meeting. Uh, it sounds like they've kind of built up around it. There's a, a post that Eli's leaning on, but it, it's just the, the tabernacle. And she comes to God in prayer. Uh, she brings this great pain before God and she makes a vow that if God would give her a son, she would dedicate him to God. Uh, and as we see this story, uh, it's worth noticing what a surprise Elkanah and Hannah are here. Uh, knowing the state of Israel at the time, knowing what we've just seen from Judges in this culture of idolatry and sin where, where Israel is further away from God than the evil nations around them, we see Elkanah routinely brings his family to the tabernacle to worship and offer sacrifices. We see Hannah here coming before God humbly in genuine prayer. Here is a shining light in an otherwise hopeless Israel. I think it's really telling as we, we see in the story, uh, Eli, he's the priest, he comes to Hannah, who's in silent prayer at, at God's house. And what's his assumption? She's drunk. Uh, I think it shows the state of things. I, I think that gives us in, some insight into what was normal in Israel at the time. There's a, a real irony there, isn't there, that, that Eli misses in, in Hannah the sincere faith that he himself as a priest is supposed to have. That he's supposed to represent uh, because Israel has become so corrupt. Uh, and as we continue on through the story, we see that God... Uh, is gracious in responding to Hannah's prayer and she falls pregnant. 
Uh, and amazingly, true to her vow, uh, once she's weaned Samuel, which probably means somewhere around three years, maybe a bit longer, as long as five years, uh, then she brings him to the temple and hands him over uh, so that he can serve God, uh, which we know he does throughout the rest of his life. And what a huge act of faith that must have been for Hannah. Can you imagine? After all she's been through, having longed for a child for so long, and then in faith to send him to serve God. I think the only way she could have possibly come to be able to do that is because of her incredible trust in God, that she trusts that, that this is the right thing to do, that God will take care of Samuel. And it's nice for us to note that, that Samuel wasn't her only child. Down the track we, we read that she's had more. Uh, so it comes up in chapter 2 in next week's passage. Uh, we read, And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Uh, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Uh, and, and so we see that wonderful thing. But, but we can't imagine that this later grace reduces the difficulty of the sacrifice that she made. Uh, when she gave Samuel over, she had no idea that those extra kids would come. And in and of itself, this is a, a wonderful story, isn't it? A story that speaks of a wonderfully rare faith shining in a really dark part of Israel's history. Uh, and particularly Hannah's faith, but, but Elkanah's as well. It, it's a wonderful little picture, isn't it? But I think there's also another level to this story. Uh, one that shows a bigger story, something bigger that's going on, that God is doing. Uh, bigger in scale. Uh, but in saying that, I want to be clear that, that as we zoom out, as we notice the bigger scale, that doesn't take away anything from, from this small story of this, this small family. Uh, and so before we move on to, to the bigger story, I want to draw out a couple of wonderful things that, that I think we see there in the small one. Uh, the first one there uh, that I think it's wonderful to notice is the relationship that Hannah has with God. Uh, we sometimes get stuck in, in the wrong thinking that in the Old Testament there's no relationship with God, it's just religious rituals. Uh, I guess we see that you know, as they do sacrifices and there's quite a, a process uh, that, that we lose track of the relationship that's going on. Um, and, and of course there, there is some truth to that. Uh, Jesus in dying on the cross gave, gave us access to God in, in a way that they didn't have before. Um, but to say that the Old Testament was just ritual and, and no relationship misses the mark, doesn't it? And we see that really clearly as we look at how Hannah relates to God in this passage. Early on we see her pouring her heart out to him, weeping out her greatest anguish. And at the end of the passage she keeps relating to him with full honesty, doesn't she? Uh, this time it's the opposite end of the spectrum. Instead of weeping, it's joy. Uh, she's rejoicing, worshipping, sacrificing. Uh, in chapter 2, we see this incredible prayer that she pours out to God. We'll, we'll have a bit of a look at it later. I think seeing uh, all this play out uh, in, in this Old Testament story should give us an incredible confidence to come before God with, with honesty, to, to pour our hearts out to him. Even more so being on this side of the cross, uh, where Jesus has removed all the barriers between us and God. Uh, Alan helped us see a couple of weeks ago uh, that because of what Jesus has done, we can now call God our Father. Uh, a really special moment uh, in the Bible. 
So how much more then should we come to our Heavenly Father with our needs? How much more should we pour out with honesty to God, Jesus having done what he has? This story reminds us that God is not just concerned for the nation, he's not just concerned for the church, but he's concerned for the individual as well. God is concerned for Hannah and what she's going through. Seeing Hannah bring her grief before God is an invitation for us to do likewise. And I want to encourage you to, to be those people, to be people who can come before God, uh, who can bring your heart to him. Perhaps you're going through something hard. Uh, maybe you've convinced yourself that God isn't interested. This story shows us the opposite, doesn't it? God cares. God invites you to come before him with whatever you're going through. In the Bible, we read that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. We have a God who cares about the small things in our lives. So never feel that you can't bring whatever you have going on to God. What a great encouragement. The second thing I think that's helpful to notice in this story is the real trust that we see Hannah has in God. In Hannah's pain, where does she turn? Well, we've seen she turns to God. She comes before him, not, a, not afraid to express that pain. And when she has, it's really clear that, that Hannah trusts God to handle it. Listen to her exchange with Eli from verse 16. Uh, we read, Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went away, then she went her way, and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. See what happened there? Uh, she prayed to God, she hands her burdens over to him, and having, having done that, she's able to walk away, no longer downcast. Now she goes away and eats, where earlier we read she's, she's in too much grief to eat. She's trusting God to take her burden. I think that's something that's really important for us to grab onto. I think in general, we're, we're generally good at bringing our burdens to God. I think our problem tends to be that we don't leave them with him. Listen to these verses. They're, they're well known from the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Uh, so it's 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, when we really hand over our anxieties to God, when we hand over those troubles, when we trust God to handle them, we read then comes peace. The trick there is actually trusting him, isn't it? To leaving those things with him, trusting that, that he knows what's best. It's good to know that Hannah went away with peace before she knew the outcome. It wasn't that she got pregnant and then had peace. Uh, she didn't know at that point what would happen, yet she trusted God. The reality is that in these situations, the outcome isn't always the one that we hope for. Faithful prayer isn't a recipe to always get what we think is best. God may have something else in mind. Uh, we need to be careful not to read a passage like this as an instruction sheet for getting what we want. Though Hannah was barren and God acted to bring her a child, that won't always be the case. It may be that God has something else in mind. 
The goal is to trust God for the outcome, whatever that might be, even when that's incredibly hard. There's a hard reality in this account that, that not only was God behind Hannah's becoming pregnant, we read he was also the one that closed her womb in the first place. God is at work in a way where we don't always see the depth of what's going on. In her grief, Hannah couldn't, know, couldn't have known all that God would bring through this situation. Uh, she didn't know how this was all going to unfold. Yet what's remarkable to me is that she trusted him, not knowing that. She trusted that God knew what to do, that God knew what was best. I think seeing Hannah's faith in this story should inspire us not to trust God to get the outcome we hope for, but to trust God regardless of the outcome. I think that's hard, but it's a great lesson, isn't it? Uh, I want to mention one more thing before we move on to our last point. Uh, this one is not so much an application that comes from the passage, but, but I think it's something that it's worth us reflecting on while we're here. Uh, as I chatted with people about this passage this week, uh, it struck me that a number of people were appalled at how horrible Penina was to Hannah. Uh, and of course I don't disagree with that. Penina is absolutely horrible in this passage. What struck me was the assumption that it's not something we need to worry about anymore. I think people doing it uh, in the vindictive way we see Penina doing it is reasonably rare, though I do think it still happens. But I do think that it's very common for people to be thoughtless in the way they talk about what is a particularly difficult and sensitive issue. Uh, there's a couple of people in my life that, are, that I'm close to who struggled to have kids. Uh, when you're aware of that struggle, you begin to realise how often thoughtless comments are made. Uh, for me, I realised how often I'd said things that were just super unhelpful. Uh, because I hadn't known the situation or thought enough about what might be going on. To the couple desperately wanting kids, but who aren't able, the well-meaning person who casually says, says to them at church, so, so when are you going to start having kids? Or, or when are you going to have the next one? It's actually a really hard thing to hear. It, it amazes me how graciously I've seen people respond in that situation. Uh, so I think it's worthwhile just to take a moment to encourage us to recognise that often people are going, going through tough things that we might not realise. Uh, and particularly around this matter of having kids, I want to encourage us to be just a little bit extra careful in the way that we speak. For someone in that situation, it's hard, no matter what we say. So let's be people who are just a little bit extra sensitive, just in case. I think that's a good encouragement from here. Uh, that brings us to our last point. Uh, I want us to zoom out a little bit because uh, as wonderful and as important as this small story is, uh, it's also important to recognise that God is showing us something more here. There's something else going on. Uh, there's a bigger story afoot. Uh, we can see that because there's some pretty obvious clues, uh, some things that when we think about them in the context of the Bible, show us that we should dig a little bit deeper. Uh, the first one of those clues is that this story starts with a genealogy. Um, now that's a little clue uh, when we get used to the Bible that we should be paying attention to. Uh, because usually when we read a genealogy, it tells us something important is going to happen. 
That's what I think start of the Gospels. We get a genealogy of Jesus, don't we? Uh, the next clue comes when we hear that Hannah is barren. Uh, because elsewhere in the Bible, when we hear that someone is barren, it means that God is about to act. Uh, if you're familiar with a few parts of the Bible, I want you to have a think. So if you can think of someone else in the story who might be in the Bible who might be barren. Uh, so here's the ones I found. Uh, so Sarah, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mum. Uh, there's a Shumanite woman in Two Kings. And then Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mum. Uh, in each of those case, cases, we see God act by bringing a child to this barren woman. Uh, and later we'll see doing, God doing something significant in that child's life. Um, so seeing here that Hannah is barren and that God acts to bring a child it is a bit like a big sign that's put up. Uh, watch this space. Something big is going to happen. Uh, I think a helpful place to look as we think about that uh, is to Sarah and Abraham. Uh, I'll give you a, the real quick version of it. Uh, so if you remember from the timeline, Abraham was the one that God made those three promises to, uh, that he'd give him land, that he'd be a blessing to the whole world, and that God would make his family, uh, his offspring, into a great nation. But there was a problem. God said his family would become a great nation, but Abraham and Sarah had no children. Sarah was barren. And as the years went on, it seemed less and less likely that this promise would come true. Um, so listen to these words from Genesis 17. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you, will no longer, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Uh, at this point, Abraham had basically given up. He's 100, Sarah's 90. Uh, so not so surprising that he'd given up. If Curse and I somehow make it to those ages, or nearabouts, she'd be 92 when I'm 100, uh, I can say with some pretty high confidence that there won't be any kids coming. We'll definitely have given up by then. Abraham and Sarah had put having a child into the hopeless category. But then along comes Isaac. See, it's in that hopeless category that God seems to prefer to do his work. It makes it clear just who is making things happen. It wasn't because Abraham and Sarah were incredible physical specimens. It's because God is a God of miracles. Think again of the context we find today's passage in. For Israel, things have certainly moved into the hopeless category, haven't they? Judges leaves us wondering what could possibly be done to save them. And then 1 Samuel starts with this small-scale story of God reversing a woman's hopeless situation. And from there, God will go on to shape the nation, using that child as a catalyst for change. Listen to the prayer that Hannah prays in chapter 2. I'll read it out. It's a little bit long, but as I read it, uh, I want you to notice how often it talks about God being in total control. Uh, and particularly, how many examples we see of God reversing situations. Now follow along with me. Uh, then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. 
There is no one holy like you, Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak with such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons hinds away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. And he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We started off thinking about Israel as a fixer-upper, about them needing things completely turned around, and we saw the small story, the story of one faithful family and how God acted powerfully in their lives. And that small story shows us what's happening in the bigger story. That the only way to reverse Israel's problems, the only way to bring about the change that they need, is in God himself. The one who reverses a hopeless situation to make it hopeful. One of the big lessons we learn here is the need to humble ourselves and submit to God's rule. That's going to be a lesson that we see over and over again in the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to see Israel learn it more than once the hard way. When we were working out the title of this series, I had to figure it out. Liam took off and left me, so I was struggling my way through it. I looked at other churches for inspiration, and I saw most of the ones I found had titles like In Search of a King or Looking for a Leader. And of course those titles make sense, don't they? That 1 Samuel is where we see this king arrive in Israel. We look for a worthy leader. But I reckon it misses something in putting the focus on the leader. Because as we see today, this isn't just the story of a nation. But it's a story of individuals. And in each of those individuals, we see that heart matters. That's where we got our talent from. Heart matters. That's an idea that will come up over and over again in this book. One of the more well-known verses from 1 Samuel that we come to comes in chapter 16. Uh, where God sends Samuel to select the future king. Uh, And this is what we read. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Look at today's passage. We've got Hannah, who outwardly appears to have arrived at the temple drunk. But despite her appearances you'll struggle to find a more godly woman than Hannah. And on the other hand, we've got Eli, and we've got his sons, the priests of Israel, who who by their position appear to have a right standing with God. But as we examine them next week, we're going to see that they're rotten to the core. 
Uh, and so as we finish, we need to ask, what about us? The big question for us as we make our way through 1 Samuel is going to be, what's in our hearts? Because heart matters. There's a warning here that, that we don't just go through the motions, that we're not just living our Christian lives for appearance sake, but ultimately actually not being where we should, ultimately being like Israel, just going off and doing as we see fit. Because Jesus doesn't see the outward appearance. He sees the heart, our hearts. When we reflect on that, I suspect, I suspect that most of us will realise the reality that, that each one of us is just like Israel was. Each one of us is a fixer-upper. And perhaps that feels a little hopeless to you. Uh, some of us may have never come to Jesus. You may feel like God could never accept someone like you. Someone as lost and broken as you. Maybe you feel hopeless in that way. For others, we've, we might have accepted Jesus' forgiveness, but we just keep failing. Failing to prioritise God. Failing to get time in his word. Failing to kick a particular sin. And so maybe that's how we feel hopeless. Well, the good news is that we've seen today that our God is the God who brings hope in a hopeless situation. Our God is the God of reversals. God does the heavy lifting. The call on us is to turn our hearts to him. To ask him to step in and act. I'll read a little bit more of uh, chapter 2, that prayer again. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. God takes us who are hopeless and brings hope. See, one of the great things to come out of this passage is the call to ask. To ask God to bring that hope. To ask God for that reversal. Did you notice in the story where Samuel got his name from, what it meant? That's there in chapter in verse 20. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. In fact, uh, a couple of verses later, uh, that theme continues. So in verses 27 and 28, uh, they're quite clunky to translate. Uh, and so you, you kind of miss it a little bit in our Bibles. Um, but a more literal reading of it, we'll see, we see that the theme of asking is really present. So I'll put up uh, kind of a more literal version, and you'll see why they changed it. It says, For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I also have given back what, I, what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is one that is asked for Yahweh. Today, as we finish, I want to encourage you to humble yourself before the God who is in control of everything. Come to him with a sincere heart and ask. Ask that he would bring you closer to him. Ask that he would remove your idols. Ask that he would change your priorities so that your life can be shaped by Jesus. That last ask... Uh, uh, he lives, he is one that is asked for Yahweh. Uh, what she's saying is that she asked for him for Yahweh's sake. That he would come to serve Yahweh. She wanted 
uh, her life and his life to be a life for God? Why don't we ask the same thing, that our lives can be lived for God? And let's trust him as we do. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this passage today. Uh, I thank you for this small story uh, that shows you acting so powerfully, that you are uh, in Hannah's life, that you responded to her grief, and that you uh, bring this bigger story from what happened, that uh, this son, Samuel, becomes a catalyst for change, that you brought about your purpose in Israel. Lord, we pray that we would be people who ask, ask that you would change us, ask that you would step into our lives and make us more like Jesus. Help us to trust you in that. Uh, help us to allow you to make those changes in us. Uh, Lord, and we pray that each one of us would live lives that serve you. And we pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Um, the band's going to come up and lead us in our final song. All right, uh, Q&A real quick. Alice has a microphone. I'll try to do quick answers. We've been here long enough. Any questions? Yes, Sue. All comments? The mother, Hannah, chose to make Samuel a Levite. Sorry, can you just speak up a little bit? He made, the mother made him a Levite for life. Mm-hmm. If he changes his mind as an adult, can you get out that sort of oh, thing? So a Nazarite? Yeah, it's a bit of a funny... Both Samson and Samuel have this Nazarite vow, uh, which isn't typically this thing where you grow your hair for your whole life. It's usually for a set period. So they're quite unique in that. So it's not a normal Nazarite vow. Uh, and so we don't. it's a bit hard to know quite what to make of it. Um, uh, they're, they're kind of contrasting figures. Samuel is this committed for life uh, to God, kind of mouthpiece of God. So he's kind of contrasting Sam, uh, Samson, who was pretty a terrible bloke. Um, so there's something in that. But but yeah, it's I guess Sam, Samson was that, but he didn't really stick to it, did he? So yeah, so I guess he could have broken it. Any other questions? No? Nothing comes through the chat? That was easy. Alice, over to you.